The following material is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find out more about the Institute's work by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Hello and welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. This is the show for culture makers, where we help you think about the nature of human beings and what we do and make with the raw materials of creation, how those cultural activities reflect our relationship to God, to one another, and to the world. I'm Ryan Aris, and today I got to sit down with Joe Boot, EICC founder and president, for episode 8 of season 1 of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This season is all about culture, and on this episode, we get into some of the frequently asked questions that Joe gets when he preaches a message of cultural reformation. So for anyone who's ever wondered about the Ezra Institute's position on the relationship of the gospel to the world, or maybe you've picked up some labels about a theological position, you're not going to want to miss this show. So Joe, you, uh, you've got a message of cultural renewal, of Christian cultural renewal, and that, uh, that sounds great to some people, and uh, to some people it, it kind of uh, throws up a red flag and they get uh, conjures up images that you're trying to Christianize the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would you respond to, uh, to the charge that you're trying to Christianize Canada? Well, I'm certainly not trying to paganize it. Uh, or Islamicize it, uh, or secularize it. So the the question really that underlies the question here uh, that I think we need to get to is, um, is a, a nation or a culture, can a nation or a culture be religiously neutral? Um, because Christians, by virtue of the fact that they preach the gospel, and share the Lordship of Christ, or at least this should be our message, that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and King. He's the creator and redeemer of all things. He's transforming our hearts. That's the root of our being. So that out of the heart, which bring the issues of life, every aspect of our life is affected. Our, Our marriages, our families, our work, our vocation, everything is impacted by that kind of radical transformation. So, uh, the question really amounts to what it the what is the impact or the what are the implications of the gospel for a society and a nation um uh, sometimes what people have in their minds here is the notion that uh, a message of um gospel cultural transformation means some sort of coercive effort yeah exactly to grab the uh, you know the inst- the instruments and uh, and and levers of power, and sort of enforce or impose a Christian paradigm on everybody. And so the clear and simple answer to to the, that question is no. That's not what we're doing, because uh, true faith um, is something that must be embraced by people of their own volition and applied of their own volition. Otherwise, it's not uh, true faith. So that so no, what we are concerned with is not coercing anybody. Um, nonetheless, every culture will be either uh, secular or humanistic or pagan or Islamic or Hindu. It, a, a nation, a culture, Canada will be something. And so, as a Christian, I'm certainly not, as I as I began, I'm certainly not trying to secularize it or paganize it. And I believe that as the gospel is proclaimed as people embrace the truth of the gospel, and as we as Christians faithfully then apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives, 
that the result will be that every aspect and every sphere of human life and human culture will be seasoned, it will be impacted, it will be transformed, if you will, by the gospel. And in that sense, it will lead to Christianized institutions, Christianized um, uh, educational institutions, Christianized political institutions, uh, Christianized civil institutions, because Christians active in those areas will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and seek to apply biblical values, biblical faith into those um, areas. So as a, as a culture turns to Christ, it will of necessity uh, Christianize, if you will. That was the meaning of Christendom. The meaning of Christendom was that these peoples and nations had, broadly speaking, embraced the gospel, embraced a Christian paradigm, and therefore their institutional life reflected that. And that's why we enjoy the freedoms that we have today. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea to have a, a Christianized culture that's been seasoned by the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so that, that sounds good. Um, it's, it sounds good uh, for, for me as a Christian. Uh, but what's, uh, what's, what about the position of, of people who freely reject the gospel in a Christianized society? Yeah. Like with, uh, if, if I'm an atheist... And every every sort of work workplace opportunity in my town is run by Christians. Um, what uh, what chance do I have of getting a job there? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, this is a very good question um, because it comes to the heart of what is the ground and root of freedom, and uh, what are the implications for uh, civil life, for cultural life, for political life. Um, in a context where the gospel has seen tremendous success. And I think a very uh, uh, simple answer here is, look at, if we look around the, the world and we look at cultures that have not been deeply impacted by the Christian gospel, you take an Islamic culture like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, and you ask yourself, what level of freedom do people actually have in those nations? And the answer is it's very limited. Then you could ask a question, well, let's look at uh, some of the cultures that embraced an atheistic world and life view, and let's look at the level of freedom that those Marxist or neo-Marxist nations have given to people. And you look at North Korea, or you look at China, uh, and you ask the question there, what, what's the level of freedom? And we'll have to say, very, very limited. And then if you look historically at pagan cultures, uh, the Greco-Roman world, look at Roman civilization, for example, and you look at the uh, levels of freedom that people who did not uh, embrace the emperor cult and uh, and acknowledge the lordship and so absolute sovereignty of Caesar, the kind of fate uh, that they suffered, or in more recent times, you know, we could look at the 20th century and the atheistic uh, political revolutions we saw in the Soviet Union um, and uh, in Nazi Germany, and ask, well, what freedom did people have there? Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that the, the freedoms that you and I are enjoying today in a place like Canada or the United States or Great Britain are those that have been bequeathed to them through uh, the gospel of Christ, which recognized a principle of lordship, a principle of sovereignty that transcended all human authority and gave us an appeal beyond the emperor, the king, uh, the state to God, uh, that all uh, authority is subject to a higher authority. In other words, to put it very simply, there's a law above the law. There is, there, is a, there is a king above the king. 
There, uh, is that mean? Is that a transcendent authority? Is that what that means? Precisely, a okay. transcendent authority, not purely uh, imminent authority. And when, if you look at any culture that has not had uh, an ultimate transcendent uh, appeal to uh, the living God who has revealed uh, his standard of righteousness and justice in his word, uh, we have oppression. Now, in a Christian context, because the Christian worldview uh, acknowledges that uh, our relationship with God is one of, it's volitional, it's freely chosen, uh, the Holy Spirit can be grieved uh, the Holy Spirit can be rejected. The Holy Spirit can even be blasphemed. Uh, there are eternal consequences to some of that, of course. Uh, but the political order that's emerged from the Christian world and life view has been what we might call a um, a liberal uh, worldview. I don't mean by that the liberal party. I mean um, a liberal worldview that has recognized the rule of justice or the rule of law and maximized people's freedom within the rule of justice, the rule of law in terms of a, ultimately a transcendent authority. That has been the ground of freedom. And so a Christianized culture would recognize that. It would recognize people's liberty and freedom. It would have a competitive public space. It would have democratic institutions that allow competition and voting and so forth. Uh, and the Christian moves out into the public space with the confidence that because Christ is the truth, eventually the truth wins out. And what we're seeing in our culture right now in the West as we've taken a progressively pagan turn and we're becoming more and more radically secular is that actually some fundamental basic freedoms of Christians, of Christian people now, are being challenged by an increasingly totalizing state. Um, and that's that's a frightening thought that as we turn from a, a Christian basis uh, and the rule of justice and law, uh, we can start to move to uh, a rule by a kind of oligarchy or an elite in the courts or in the political sphere uh, that start to um, dictate by by a, by a rapid expansion of state interference in every area of people's lives. So a Christian order would recognize the autonomy, the sovereignty of the various spheres that God has established for creation, which maximizes people's freedom. So you said, you said earlier that, uh, that a Christian, Christian cultural renewal or Christianization of the nation is not equal to trying to seize the levers of power and, and sort of make a top-down imposition of, of Christian morality. Mm -hmm. But you, you've also just said that, uh, that as a culture gets Christianized, that's reflected in its laws. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's, uh, what's the difference there between, uh, between, between those two statements? How is, it, uh, how, is it, how is it, I guess, legitimate and good for, a, uh, for Christian, uh, Christian laws to be, to be uh, introduced, mm -hmm. but, uh, but illegitimate and non-Christian to try to seize those same levers of power and legislation? Mm -hmm. Well, when we talk about the problem of seizing uh, or grabbing hold of, uh, of power, we, we think, I'm thinking more in terms of there, in terms of a sort of a coup of such, uh, of sorts, um, or um, an attempt to bypass um, the consent of the people to be governed in some way, uh, efforts to bypass um, the uh, liberal 
um, impulse, and I don't mean a, um, again, as a, to qualify, I don't mean the sort of North American liberal progressivism. I mean a classical form of liberalism seasoned by a conservative um, perspective that shaped Britain, for example. So the the, the difference is, um, is, is critical. Uh, one approach would be looking to bypass legitimate um, political... Uh, educational, legal means to impose something. The other is to win the public space through the power and force of argument um, and the human flourishing that follows from a an applied Christian world and life view. But let me say just a, a couple of things that relate to that. First of all, what I'm not saying is that power is somehow inherently evil or wrong. Right. Um, you know, God is almighty. He's all powerful. That doesn't make God evil. Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth belong to him. Uh, uh, that was a statement of total power and authority. So power and authority in themselves are not evil. It's the the direction in which power moves that is the critical issue. Um, and all cultural change involves power. So power in itself is not wrong. It's not bad. Um, everybody's life involves some kind, some area, some sphere of power and authority. And human culture, human civilization couldn't function without power and authority. And certainly cultural formation and change doesn't happen without cultural power. So the notion that um, that is abroad in the world uh, amongst Christians anyway, that, well, you know, love is everything and power is bad. And as soon as you hear the word power, that must mean that you've given your ears to the devil. Um, this is clearly wrong from a biblical point of view. Uh, Christians should not be fleeing positions of power, um, uh, positions of authority in which to glorify God, in which to honor God. Now, law is one expression of power and authority. Um, and uh, we have our legislative bodies. Parliament uh, for us would be, um, and I guess Congress in the United States, are the ultimate lawmaking uh, bodies. Um, and those, those uh, um, houses are filled with representatives of uh, those who are consenting to be governed. So um, in a Christian perspective... Uh, as people are turning to faith in Christ and recognizing a law above the law, a transcendent authority, they're going to be looking to Christian, to biblical principles, uh, to govern them and for those to be enacted in law. And so that's exactly what happened from uh, the, especially from the time of Alfred the Great and the foundations of the codification of English law, which of course influenced profoundly North America. Uh, because of the religion of the people, the faith of the people, which always governs the direction of law, uh, the faith of the people meant that they looked to transcendent authority, to God, to the guidance of God's word, uh, to inform law and justice. Uh, and that wasn't coercive. It was, it was the faith of the people being expressed in the public space. And culture is always only the externalization or the, um, the application of the religious faith of the people to the various uh, organs of culture, including law. Uh, one of the syllogisms that I like to use frequently is that uh, um, if culture is the public expression of the worship of the people, 
and uh, the Christian gospel turns us back toward true worship to, to Christ, to the living God, then it restores us to true culture. And one major aspect of culture is law. Uh, and uh, Christ gives us his law in the totality of scriptural revelation uh, to provide a foundation for our idea of law and justice. Uh, and so as a people turns to God, uh, they will enact righteous laws. A righteous people will enact righteous laws. And if you look at the last 50 years, especially of Western cultural life, you see that um, our legislative activities have been spent in some degree repealing uh, scriptural law for example repealing um sabbath law uh the sabbath day act here right. in canada yeah the lord's day act uh, that's right the lord's day act um repealing um uh, blasphemy laws repealing uh, laws that protect marriage um uh, and family and so forth you can actually look at a whole catalog there of uh, really an effective repealing repealing of laws in the area of the protection of life of the uh, both the unborn and the elderly uh, so we've been in a process of repealing scripturally rooted law replacing it with something else because that reflects the religion of the people and as the religion of the people changes the ultimate sovereign of that people changes and therefore the law changes so is it to, is it reasonable to think of law as a kind of a bellwether of of a society's highest values very much so i mean it's uh it's i think it's a, a sort of take home um memorable thing to think of law as a value processing system um law teaches people teaches a culture values because by both the precept and the sanction attached to uh, the precept people are learning um what that culture values as uh, most important and obviously, a people that has been turning to Christ is going to value uh, what God values. So uh, this is always a both and activity when you think about cultural transformation or uh, you use the term there Christianization, the sort of thing that people are supposedly afraid of, um, is that on the one hand, we are um, trying to preserve in a, in a revolutionary culture like our own, we're trying to preserve as much as we can of christian law uh, because that's loving our neighbor human flourishing uh, takes place when people live in terms of god's word and actually um as the scripture says you know uh, sin um is a, a reproach to any people um, righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people and all those who uh, god says through uh, the writer of proverbs um, that all those who hate me love death. So when a culture moves away from uh, its confidence in Christ and in the gospel, it moves towards death, it moves towards destruction. And as Christians, if we love our neighbor, if we love God and love our neighbor, we will want to preserve as much of Christian law as we possibly can so that the lives of the, for example, the unborn and the elderly and family life and so forth are preserved as far as possible because we hopefully want the best for our neighbor um at the same time we need to be engaged in evangelism and evangelization and apologetic witness to the truth of the gospel so that more people will recognize uh the good not just for themselves individually but the public good of the lordship of jesus christ there's a common i guess evangelical 
paradigm that uh, that goes something like, why why would we try to transform culture? Cultures go in a hell in a handbasket, to use use another expression. Um, why why would we why would we try to put our efforts into sort of to turning this lumbering hulking behemoth around? Mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's the end game? What's the payoff? And like, is there is there any chance of success at that Mm -hmm. well of course part of the answer to that is that um we don't want to hand over the world to satan um i mean if we if we don't want the lordship of of christ and people ask well you know what's the point um i would ask well do you love your neighbor uh first of all are you concerned about their welfare and their well-being does it matter you to you that thousands of children are being murdered in the womb that family life is being destroyed that the elderly the sick uh even infants are euthanized increasingly at the hands of the western state um those things should matter to all of us and it should matter to us that uh if we recognize that there are two principles at work in the world uh redemption and rebellion that's easy to remember two r's what there's the, the way of grace that's the way of redemption or the way of rebellion um then one of those two principles is always working itself out in cultural life, in education, in law, in politics, in medicine, in the arts, in all of these different areas. So do we as Christian people want those areas of life to be uh, righteous, to be God-honoring, to be uh, uh, areas that are um, manifest the glory of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, the grace of God? Uh, do we want the redemptive work of Christ to permeate all of these areas, or are we content to hand over God's creation to the kingdom of darkness? And I think that's a critical question. Now, the answer is given to us, even in how Jesus teaches us to pray. Uh, he says, well, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. So Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will and kingdom should be done right here on earth. Uh, and if he wants us to pray for that, then he obviously wants us to work towards that. In fact, he tells us exactly that in the great Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness or justice. It's the same word there in the Greek, uh, for they shall be satisfied. So we do it because in the end, it's not just my private, it's not just my soul, right? It's not just my my own personal relationship with God that matters to God, as though this world is divided up into two realms, one material, one spiritual, and only the upper story of existence, the spiritual realm, uh, allegedly matters to God. And so as long as my personal devotions are right, God doesn't care what's happening in the culture. No, Christ has come to redeem all things. The Bible's very clear about that, that redemption is cosmic. From him, through him, to him are all things. And he's come to reconcile all things to himself, making peace through the blood of the cross. So, and we are co-workers uh, in that process of reconciliation. The Bible tells us that as well, that we are ministers of reconciliation. And so when you think of the gospel in those terms and you have a robust doctrine of creation, not just a robust doctrine of uh, redemption, we will see that actually all of these areas are of life uh, through uh, the redemptive work of Christ in the life of his people. All these areas of life are to be touched by the redemptive grace of God. 
And uh, that's what it means to bring glory to God and to love our neighbour. And as to the question of whether there's any hope of having any success, well, I would say, well, look at history for a start. Uh, and we see how uh, we are here today because our forebears had, uh, we've got these freedoms today. Uh, we have these privileges today because our forebears saw tremendous success in the preaching of the gospel and the application of uh, a biblical world and life view to the cultures in which they lived uh, and uh, their success um, by the grace of God thank the Lord that they did succeed so that we we're able to freely speak today and post on online uh, this conversation uh, about the about the lordship of about the lordship of Jesus Christ and yes we're promised that uh, Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. The prophet said of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. So we should have a healthy, not triumphalistic, certainly not utopian. That's a humanistic concept. But we should have a healthy sense of confidence that Christ, who has been given all authority in heaven and earth and has sent his spirit into the world for the purposes of redemption, that we shouldn't look at the world and say, well, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, let's just escape. We should recognize that Christ has all power and authority and that as we live and apply this great gospel of God uh, and serve the purposes of reconciliation, that God will do wonderful things as he has done throughout these last 2,000 years in the history of the church. So there's a, there's a sense, a very real sense, in which we are our brother's keeper. Indeed. <laughs> Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, did he not tell us, give us the parable of the good Samaritan? Right. Um, who is my neighbor? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the look at Jesus' interaction with the Gentiles, even in the Gospels, uh, the, his interactions that he has with the centurions, uh, these Roman centurions, and uh, his praising of their faith. When you look at Jesus' concern for uh, the prostitute, the the tax collector, the the those ostracized and marginalized in the society of that day, uh, that God wanted us to be concerned, that Jesus wanted us to be concerned with uh, our our neighbors. Um, to love our neighbor doesn't mean, of course, that we can work up emotional, gooey feelings of love towards our enemies. We are commanded to love our enemies, but what it means to love your enemy is to obey God's word with respect to them. So to love my enemy does not mean that I work up emotional feelings of of um, of goodwill, but rather that I'm not going to take the life of my neighbor. I'm not going to steal from my neighbor. I'm not going to try and uh, take my neighbor's wife. I'm not going to try and seize my neighbor's property. I'm not going to bear false testimony about my neighbor, even if they are uh, my enemy. Mm -hmm. So uh, to... To love God and to love your neighbor means to obey God's word with respect to them. And that can only lead to human flourishing. It can only lead to God's blessing. You, Jesus mentions in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, as you've quoted, uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but when he's standing before Pilate, he also says, My kingdom is not of this world. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we understand and live with and reconcile those two statements that mm -hmm. uh, we want the kingdom to come but the kingdom's not of this world well first of all we have to remember what came before 
uh, Jesus' comment to Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. Um, and that was uh, that Pilate claimed that he had authority uh, over Jesus. Uh, he said, do you not know that I have the power to you know, free you or to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, first and foremost, you would have no authority over me, save it were given you from above. Um, and that, of course, in that same conversation is uh, a, an ultimate claim that Christ makes there for the total authority of God over and above all uh, human uh, authority. Um, and so what Jesus then says is he doesn't say, you'll notice, my kingdom is not in this world. He says it's not of or from this world. The contrast that he was making was that the kingdom of God uh, does not grow, is not expanded by, uh, is not its source of authority and power in the earth, is not like the authority and power and kingdom of the Roman Empire. It doesn't come about through the power of uh, the military might of Rome. It doesn't come about by armies or navies um, or imperial authority. It comes about through the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Christ is the king of his kingdom. That kingdom is then not um, mediated by Christ's rule and reign ultimately is not mediated by any particular institution that can claim to represent that total authority. Uh, rather, Christ mediates that rule himself to his church and through his people. Uh, and in fact, in every area and every aspect of life. So there's no contradiction between the uh, the notion of the expansion of the kingdom of God in the earth, um, uh, the coming of the kingdom. Uh, the gospel, remember, is the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and the fact that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was saying that the power, the source of power and authority of this kingdom is not earthly, like the power of Caesar. It's the power of Christ himself. It's again, it's a transcendent, not an imminent kingdom and authority. Uh, so the he doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't being manifest in the earth. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been teaching people how to do the works of the kingdom of God. And he certainly wouldn't be praying, telling us to pray that it would come on earth as it is in heaven he's talking about the nature and character of the kingdom and how it comes we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for cultural reformation please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on itunes stitcher or google play music and leave us a rating or a review for more ezra institute resources please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca thank you for listening Feel free to share the material with friends, but do not charge for or alter it in any way without the written consent of the EICC. Thanks again.